Welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library, and today we're going to travel back in Low Country history to explore the topic of German immigrants in the early days of our community. Now, hold on a minute. I know that there are some listeners out there saying, well, I'm not really interested in German history, but I promise you that this topic is more interesting than you might think. To be honest, German history is not high on my list of personal interest, but I've recently spent some time researching this topic, and it's growing on me. Why? Because it's a great story that helps us understand our community, and that's what history is all about. I'm not an expert on German history or German genealogy, but I know a good story when I see one. So if you want to understand the expansion of South Carolina in the first half of the 18th century, or if you simply want to learn about the roots of our state's German population, you need to hear this story. So please stick around. I started down this path recently because some friends invited me to participate in a lecture series at St. John's Lutheran Church in downtown Charleston. This year, St. John's is celebrating a number of anniversaries. 2017 marks the 275th anniversary of the first Lutheran services in the city of Charleston, and it's also the 200th anniversary of the opening of their present church building at the corner of Archdale and Clifford Streets. And don't forget, 2017 is also the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's historic dispute with the Catholic Church, which lit the fuse for the epic-changing movement we call the Protestant Reformation. Those all sound like good reasons to have a lecture series, so I agreed to participate. When I asked the kind folks at St. John's what sort of topic they'd like me to bring, they said, Can you tell us about the origins of the German community that formed the congregation of St. John's Church? From the beginning, I knew that I wasn't going to have time to delve into the genealogy of specific individuals or to comb through historic documents looking for details about the actual founding of the church. Rather, I set a different challenge for myself. I reframed the question and reduced it to a more basic level. And here's my premise for the rest of this program. If Carolina began as a staunchly English colony, how in the world did we end up with German immigrants here in the first place? Well, it's a long, complicated story involving international politics, warfare, and the timeless human pursuit of peace and prosperity. So I'll do my best to give you a brief but accurate summary of this multi-generation saga. First, a bit of background, starting in 17th century England. The roots of South Carolina date back to the year 1663, when King Charles II granted a large swath of land in North America to a group of men, styled Lord's Proprietors, who had helped him regain the English crown in 1660. We could talk for hours about the origins of the Carolina colony, but that's a topic for another day. For the moment, the point is simply this. Carolina was a colony owned by English men to be governed under the laws of the English crown. Now, this was before England was officially united with Scotland and Ireland. Starting in 1669, the Lords Proprietors of Carolina drew up a series of rules for the colony's governance, which they called the Fundamental Constitutions. Among these rules was a clause welcoming settlers practicing a wide variety of religious beliefs. 
Many historians have pointed to this clause and concluded that early Carolina offered a degree of religious freedom not found in most American colonies, or even in Europe at that time. But the fundamental constitutions of Carolina were never formally ratified or put into effect here. They served as philosophical guidelines, but they were not strictly enforced. In theory, free land was granted to all free settlers, but in practice, Anglicans or Church of England people got the best and the most land, while other Protestant denominations got some land and Catholics got none at all. King Charles II died in 1685, and his brother, James II, ascended to the crown. Unlike Charles, who was at least nominally Anglican, James was a firm adherent to the Catholic religion, and this religious affiliation made many people in the English government uneasy. For more than a century, the country had experienced nearly constant strife between the adherence to the ancient Catholic traditions and the new breakaway Protestant Church of England. Many people feared that King James's religious affiliation would lead him to ally the country with England's traditional enemies, France and Spain, which were both ruled by Catholic kings. Over the next several years, religious tension in England rose to a fever pitch. At the end of the year 1688, a Protestant Dutch prince, William of Orange, arrived in England with a small army, and King James fled to France. From that moment on, England became a staunchly Protestant state. The arrival of William of Orange, who became King William in 1689, brought England into an international conflict historians call the Nine Years' War. Between 1688 and 1697, Europe witnessed a series of bloody battles that pitted Catholic nations like France and Spain against Protestant nations such as England, Holland, and parts of Germany. During the 1690s, the Church of England gained a strong grasp on the reins of power, while non-Anglican Protestants, called dissenters, were increasingly pushed out of power. Back in Carolina, we experienced a similar struggle. In the late 1690s and early 1700s, men loyal to the Church of England formed a strong party in our government, and they sought to prevent dissenters, such as French Calvinists, Baptists, Congregationalists, and Presbyterians, from holding office or even voting. Because of our proximity to Spanish Florida and French Louisiana, and our fear of foreign spies, Catholics were most certainly not welcome in Carolina at this time. At any rate, the point is this. At the turn of the 18th century, Carolina was a staunchly Anglican colony whose leaders grudgingly tolerated the presence of dissenting immigrants from Scotland, Ireland, and France. In their eyes, these people were foreigners who should not enjoy the full rights and privileges of English citizens. Meanwhile, back in England in the early 1700s, the political landscape was beginning to change. A new international war had ignited in 1702 over the question of who would succeed to the Spanish crown, a Catholic or a Protestant king. As part of a Protestant alliance of powers, Queen Anne of England was under pressure to grant greater toleration of non-Anglican denominations. In 1707, England and Scotland were united by a treaty and acts of parliament to become the new kingdom of Great Britain. The English and Scots were now on equal political footing in the English-speaking world, which included the colonies in America as well. But the Huguenots, 
French Protestant refugees who had been arriving in England since the 1680s were still denied citizenship in their new adopted home. In 1708, the British Parliament and Queen Anne gave consent to a new law for the naturalization of foreign-born Protestants. This act was a monumental change in political policies. By simply taking an oath of allegiance and receiving a sacrament in a Protestant church, any adult male could come to Britain or one of its colonies and become a bona fide citizen. For thousands of destitute Protestants in war-torn Europe, the British naturalization law was a welcome clarion call for emigration. In the span of one year, between 1708 and 1709, more than 13,000 German-speaking refugees headed for Britain. The vast majority of these people came from the southwest region of modern Germany, which at that time was a patchwork of small independent principalities. Specifically, they came from a place then called the Electorate of the Palatinate, which is now part of the German federal state of Rhineland-Palatinate. Their region had witnessed nearly a century of warfare, from the Thirty Years' War that began in 1618, to the Nine Years' War in the 1690s, to the current conflict known as the War of Spanish Succession. Most of them were poor farmers whose lands had been ravaged by invading French forces, severe winters, and crop failures. Pamphlets touting the advantages of free land in a distant place called Carolina were then circulating in Germany. Combined with assurances of British naturalization waiting for them, thousands of Palatine families made their way toward the port of Rotterdam, where they booked passage to England. Almost overnight, it turned into a refugee crisis for Britain. Most of the resident population didn't want or need the Palatines, as they were called, and plans to fund their passage to the colonies fizzled. Some were sent back to Germany, while others were relocated to Scotland or Ireland. A small percentage, less than a thousand, made it to North Carolina, where they helped settle a new township called New Bern. In the end, the Palatine Exodus of 1708-1709 was an international calamity. In the ensuing years, denizens of the German Palatinate were forced to wait and see if Britain could get its act together and provide real assistance to needy immigrants. The War of Spanish Succession finally ended with a treaty in 1713, and in 1714 the English Queen Anne died without an heir. Into the void stepped the German Elector of Hanover, who became King George I of Great Britain. With this change in royal dynasty, the alliance between Germany and Britain was greatly strengthened, and the path for future Palatine emigrants to Carolina seemed clear. Unfortunately, a few obstacles fell into that path, and the Palatines would have to wait nearly 20 years for the opportunity to join us here in Charleston. In the spring of 1715, the Yamasee Indians and their allies rose up against the European settlers of South Carolina and ignited a bloody war that lasted for nearly three years. During this desperate time, hundreds of settlers were killed, and many more packed up and moved to other colonies. The Lord's proprietors back in England offered little assistance to the colonies during the Indian War, and frustration with our absentee landlords reached a breaking point. 
In December 1719, a number of colonists staged a bloodless coup or revolution against the government of the Lord's proprietors. The new rebel government petitioned King George to take over the administration of Carolina and to purchase the colony outright from the Lord's proprietors. The king agreed, and in the spring of 1721, a provisional royal governor, Francis Nicholson, arrived in Charleston. The political climate stabilized a bit with Nicholson's presence, but throughout the 1720s, the economy of South Carolina remained unsettled. Negotiations between the British Crown and the Lord's proprietors dragged on until 1729, during which time the colony looked like it might actually collapse. South Carolina's land office was closed during this decade, so there was no way to grant free land to new settlers. In short, South Carolina was a very unattractive colony between the years 1715 and 1730. If you were a poor Protestant looking to escape from war-torn Europe, colonies like Pennsylvania and New York were a lot more welcoming. In late 1729, the royal purchase of South Carolina was completed, and the new owner, King George II, commissioned Robert Johnson to be our new governor. In the lengthy list of his royal instructions, Governor Johnson was told to use his best efforts to get our legislature to pass an act to establish inland townships in South Carolina, as had already been done in a number of the other American colonies. By settling new townships on the frontier and offering free land and other assistance, this plan would render the colony safer from the threats of foreign invasion and domestic insurrection, that is, slave uprisings. Robert Johnson arrived in Charleston in mid-December 1730 and immediately called for new elections. The legislature convened in the spring of 1731, and on August 20th of that year, they ratified an act for appropriating the sum of 104,775 pounds, one shilling, and three pence farthing towards the payment of the public debts. The title of this law might not sound very exciting, but it was the first in what would become a series of laws appropriating money to encourage the emigration of poor foreign Protestants to South Carolina. More specifically, this 1731 law initiated a series of incentives— First, it appropriated money for surveying and laying out a series of townships over the next several years. These townships were called Amelia, Congaree, renamed Saxagotha in 1735, Edisto, renamed Orangeburg in 1735, Fredericksburg, Kingstown, or Kingston, New Windsor, Purrysburg, Queensboro, Williamsburg, and later the Welsh Tract. Second, the Township Act, as we might call it, offered tools, provisions, and other assistance to poor Protestants, in addition to the 50 acres of free land granted to every free white man, woman, and child who came to South Carolina. Before we go any further, I want to make one point very clear. In this period of South Carolina history, we weren't grudgingly taking in poor refugees out of the kindness of our collective hearts. Quite the opposite. The colonists here felt that South Carolina was too sparsely populated, and they were terrified by the fact that the enslaved African population outnumbered the free white population. 
Furthermore, the influx of poor German Protestants into Pennsylvania and New York had done wonders for the economy of those colonies, and South Carolina didn't want to be left out of this trend. We desperately needed more farmers to move inland and grow crops such as wheat, flax, and hemp, and we needed more skilled tradesmen like blacksmiths, wheelwrights, and carpenters. By initiating and funding the township scheme in 1731, South Carolina was hoping to lure Germans away from those attractive northern colonies. In 1731, the Reverend Jean-Pierre Perry led a group of Swiss Protestants into South Carolina, and they were granted land in a new township named Perrysburg on the banks of the Savannah River. These immigrants were the first to take advantage of the new township incentives offered by our government, but they were not of German extraction. So let's keep the timeline moving ahead. In January 1732, five months after the ratification of the Township Act, South Carolina's first newspaper commenced publication. Issues from the early days of the South Carolina Gazette survive in several libraries and on microfilm, so I've been combing through them in search of poor Germans coming here. The earliest reference I can find is in mid-December 1732, when a group of 49 Palatines arrived in the port of Charleston. Were these people part of the group of Palatines that had rushed into England in 1709? No, they were simply the next generation of poor Protestants fleeing the Palatinate region of southwest Germany in search of a brighter future. Over the next several years, a number of small groups of Palatines arrived in Charleston. Some were able to pay for their passage from Europe, and so they were considered free upon arrival. After taking an oath before the governor, most of them received warrants for their free land and supplies and headed west for one of the townships. A few, perhaps just a handful, remained in urban Charleston. But most of the incoming Palatines were not free. Unable to pay for their passage across the Atlantic, they were obliged to become indentured servants here. Upon arrival in Charleston, they were sold on board the vessel in which they arrived, much like African slaves. Except, of course, they were entering into a contract to labor for a finite period of time, not the rest of their lives. After serving their time, these Palatine servants became free and were entitled to the benefits of the township scheme. Again, most of them packed up and settled in one of the townships, but a small number remained in urban Charleston. In March of 1734, a shipload of about 300 German-speaking Protestants arrived in Charleston. These immigrants were not refugees from the war-torn region of the Palatinate, however. Rather, they were religious refugees from the Austrian province of Salzburg, who had recently been evicted by their Catholic ruler. Lured by promises of free land from the trustees of the new Georgia colony, these Salzburgers, as they were known, proceeded on to Savannah and then to their new township called Ebenezer. In short, the German-speaking Salzburgers are really part of Georgia history, but they're also important in this South Carolina story, so we'll come back to them in a few minutes. In the early 1730s, small groups of Palatines continued to arrive in the port of Charleston. In 1735, our legislature updated and improved the funding of the township scheme, and in July of that year arrived a group of about 200 men, women, and children, the largest group yet. Most of these Palatines were poor farmers, obliged to sell their time as indentured servants. 
Some were skilled tradesmen, however, and had a bit more economic flexibility. How many settled in the townships and how many remained in urban Charleston is a bit of a mystery, however. In the late 1730s, the resurgence of international warfare in Europe curbed the flow of poor Protestants across the Atlantic. In 1739, Britain formally entered a war that went by several names, depending on your perspective. The War of Jenkins' Ear, the War of Austrian Succession, and King George's War. Once again, Protestants and Catholic powers in Europe were involved in a war that spilled over into the Atlantic and their colonies in America. Coming to America was risky, but some tried it anyway. From reports in the newspapers of Charleston, Philadelphia, and New York, we know that shiploads of German palatines were sometimes captured at sea and taken to foreign lands. How many people set out for Carolina and never made it? Well, we may never know. Similarly, it's difficult to determine the size of the population of German palatines living in urban Charleston at the beginning of the 1740s. Even after a decade of immigration, the number must have been quite small, but there are no surviving records that tell us who they were or exactly how many families they comprised. Nevertheless, the small German community of Charleston received a visit in 1742 from the Reverend Henry Melchior Muhlenberg, a Lutheran minister who was traveling through the colonies. Between his visits to the Ebenezer community in Georgia and the larger Lutheran congregations in Pennsylvania, Reverend Muhlenberg paused briefly in Charleston to conduct Lutheran services. For the present members of St. John's Lutheran Church, these services conducted 275 years ago constitute the beginning of their congregation. Beyond Reverend Muhlenberg's sparse notes about his visit, we know very little about the small community of German Palatines living in Charleston in 1742. The War of Austrian Succession officially ended in 1748, and by 1749, the legislature of South Carolina was preparing to welcome a new wave of European immigrants. In a session opening speech to the General Assembly in November of 1749, Governor James Glenn recommended an expansion of the bounty offered to poor Protestants. Quote, Germany has long been the seat of war and has severely felt the calamities of it, said Governor Glenn. And it may be presumed there are many of her people who wish for a place to rest in which they might enjoy the fruits of their own labor, as many of their countrymen do here, who sit undisturbed under their own vine and under their own fig tree. By the end of 1749, ships carrying palatines were again arriving in Charleston. In the spring of 1751, the South Carolina legislature finally updated the Township Act, this time offering cash bounties to incoming poor Protestants over the next five years, in addition to the customary free land, supplies, and provisions. By that time, Charleston's German community was large enough to raise a subscription to hire a minister, although they were obliged to rent the French Huguenot Church for services. In August of 1753, the Lutheran congregation petitioned the government of South Carolina for free land in town on which they could build a church. Their request was turned down, but the Germans persevered for several more years during another dark period of warfare. Between 1756 and 1763, the Atlantic world witnessed fighting on five continents and at sea. 
During these seven bloody years of conflict, known as the Seven Years' War or the French and Indian War, the flow of immigrants to the American colonies once again slowed to a trickle. Nevertheless, the German community in Charleston was fruitful and multiplying. By the end of 1758, they had sufficient funds to build their own church, so they petitioned the South Carolina government for permission to do so. Shortly after their request was granted, in January of 1759, a group of trustees for the congregation purchased a piece of land in Charleston known as Lot Number 255 in the grand model or plan of the town. Construction of the church commenced soon thereafter, and St. John's Church opened for services in 1763. That turned out to be good timing for the congregation, because it coincided with the conclusion of the Seven Years' War. With the return of peace to the Atlantic world, the flow of poor Protestant immigrants quickly resumed. Between 1764 and the beginning of the American Revolution in 1775, Charleston welcomed several more cargoes of Palatines, and the town's German population continued to prosper. On that note, it's time to review. The migration of German Palatines into colonial South Carolina occurred principally in three distinct phases. Actually, they're more like three windows of opportunity. The first window of opportunity lasted about seven or eight years, from the commencement of South Carolina's township scheme in 1731 to the formal beginning of the War of Jenkins' Ear in 1739. The second window of opportunity opened in 1749, after the conclusion of that war, and lasted for about seven years, until 1756, when the next international conflict, called the Seven Years' War, commenced. The third and final window for German migration to colonial South Carolina opened with the European Treaty of Versailles in 1763 and closed a dozen years later with the commencement of the American Revolution in 1775. The vast majority of German Palatines who came to colonial South Carolina arrived during these three windows of opportunity, but there were certainly others who managed to sneak past enemy warships on the Atlantic during these times of conflict, too. How many German Palatines came to colonial South Carolina? Well, I don't know of anyone who's assembled an estimate of this entire population, but we can use the research of Robert Merriweather as a starting point. In his 1940 book, The Expansion of South Carolina, 1729 to 1765, Merriweather says he counted 1,300 petitions for bounty land made by newly arrived or newly free Palatines between the years 1748 and 1756, that is, between the end of the War of Austrian Succession and the beginning of the Seven Years' War. Based on these 1,300 petitions, Merriweather estimated the number of headrights at 3,700. That is to say, he estimated that at least 3,700 free Palatine men, women, and children received free land during this eight-year period. Since many of the newly arrived Palatines were obliged to serve as indentured servants for a number of years, they were ineligible for land bounty until they were free. In short, the number of people arriving was probably even higher than what Merriweather has estimated. But based on Merriweather's research and my own limited study of this topic, I would estimate that the total number of Palatines coming to colonial South Carolina ranges from as low as, say, 6,000 to perhaps as high as 10,000. 
According to various notices published in the South Carolina Gazette advertising the sale of indentured Palatine men, women, and children, these Germans arrived in groups ranging in size from about 40 to as many as 500 at a time. To my knowledge, no one has combed through all of South Carolina's colonial-era newspapers in an effort to compile an estimate of the total number of people being advertised. Someone should do that. These people left their homes to face great risks in a foreign land that they hardly knew. Once in South Carolina, the German Palatines formed a valuable part of our population that contributed greatly to the success and prosperity of this great state. I hope you've enjoyed this journey into the past aboard the Charleston Time Machine. Today's program focused on the roots of the Germanic population of South Carolina, but please don't think I'm playing favorites. In future programs, we'll certainly talk about the Native Americans, English, African, Scots, Welsh, Irish, French, Swiss, Dutch, Spanish, Italian, Swedes, and other nationalities and other topics that make up the great melting pot of our community. So tune in again next week for another adventure in Low Country history. Kevin Crothers is the executive producer of this program for WYLA at the Charleston County Public Library. If you'd like to join me in person for a live presentation, check out the library's calendar of events at ccpl.org or visit my blog, charlestontimemachine.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.